Welcome. You're listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is entitled The Many Lies of El Andalus, a conversation with Eric Calderwood, and was recorded on July 14th, 2023, at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In today's podcast, we welcome our friend and Talim fellow, Dr. Eric Calderwood, to speak to us about his recent book, On Earth or in Poems, The Many Lives of El Andalus. Dr. Calderwood is an associate professor of comparative literature at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where he also holds appointments in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, the Department of History, the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies, the Program in Medieval Studies, the Program in Jewish Culture and Society, the Unit for Criticism and Interpretive Theory, the European Union Center, and the Center for African Studies. His first book, Colonial and Andalus, Spain and the Making of Modern Moroccan Culture, was published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press in 2018. It has been translated into Spanish and Arabic and won several awards, including the 2019 L. Carl Brown Ames Book Prize in North African Studies. His second book, On Earth or in Poems, The Many Lives of El Andalus, was published by Harvard University Press in May 2023. He has also published articles in PMLA, the Journal of Spanish Cultural Studies, the Journal of North African Studies, the Journal of Arabic Literature, and the International Journal of Middle East Studies. In addition, Dr. Calderwood has contributed to public-facing venues like Foreign Policy, McSweeney's, The American Scholar, NPR, and the BBC. Eric, welcome. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So in 2018, you joined our podcast to discuss your first book, Colonial Andalus. Now you're back with a new book about the legacies of El Andalus. Tell us a little bit more about the relationship between that first book and your new book. Thanks so much for that question, and thanks again for the opportunity to talk about my work. Well, really, these two books, they kind of started off as one project that over time split into two. When I first came to Morocco in 2007, I was a medievalist. That is to say, I was someone who was working on the histories and cultures of El Andalus, or medieval Iberia. And over the past 15 years or so, although I still kind of consider myself a medievalist, my interests have evolved from studying El Andalus proper to the afterlife of El Andalus, that is to say, the different ways in which El Andalus animates political and cultural debates in the present. So the first book, Colonial Andalus, which I had the great pleasure of presenting here at Tallinn back in 2018, was really one case study in the ways in which El Andalus has generated meaning and cultural identities in the present. And it focused on the ways in which Spaniards and Moroccans turn to the memory of El Andalus to understand the colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco in the colonial period. Now really the argument I was trying to make in that book was a historical argument, that is to say an argument about change over time. And really the simplest way that I can describe that argument is to say that Moroccan discourses about El Andalus, the ways that Moroccans talked and wrote about El Andalus and understood their relationship to it, changed over the course of the colonial period from the 19th to the 20th centuries. So that's really the first book, and it's about El Andalus generating a certain kind of national identity in Morocco that emerged from the colonial period. Now, of course, Morocco is not the only context in which people like to talk about El Andalus, and Spaniards and Moroccans don't have a monopoly over the memory of El Andalus and discourses about El Andalus. So this new book, On Earth or in Poems, it's really my attempt to take a broader view geographically and also to take the story up into the present. 
And this is a book that rather than focusing on one specific geographic context, tries to think about the very diverse ways in which ideas about Al-Andalus have circulated around the globe, from New York to Cordoba, from Cairo to the West Bank, and even as far as Melbourne, Australia, and South Asia. And so this is a book that really explores very wide-ranging ideas about Al-Andalus, trying to show how Al-Andalus has shaped art and politics around the world. So I find the title on Earther in Poems, The Many Lives of Al-Andalus, really evocative. Where did it come from and how did you choose this title? How does it relate to the themes and the arguments that you're trying to make? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, picking a title for a book is always challenging, and this was really a late-breaking title. I had many different ideas for the title of this book. My joke title for a long time was El Andalus in Unexpected Places. Um, then I had a title that was The Future of El Andalus, because I think one of the common misconceptions that people have about talking about El Andalus today is that it's always about nostalgia, always about longing for something that happened in the past. And really, this book is very much about using Al-Andalus to understand the present and in some ways to imagine the future, to move beyond the present, to build new futures. But over time, I decided to go for something that was a little bit more poetic, a little bit more literary, and something that drew upon one of the examples from the book. So this title, On Earth or in Poems, and I'm just going to open the book right now, it comes from one of the many poems that the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish wrote about Al-Andalus over his long career. Uh, and in particular, it comes from the first poem in an 11-part suite that Darwish wrote about Al-Andalus in the 1990s. And at the end of one of the poems in that suite, he says, and in the end, we will ask ourselves, was Al-Andalus here or there, on earth or in poems? Now, I like this quote for many reasons, on earth or in poems, because I think it points to one of the basic tensions in the book, which is, this tension between Al-Andalus as a place in history and Al-Andalus as a place in the imagination. Al-Andalus as a time and a place that once existed long ago, and Al-Andalus as an idea that has continued to travel across space and generate new forms, new cultural forms, new ways of imagining the present. So this is that tension between on earth and on poems. I also like this quote because it kind of points to one of the examples in the book, and I think it is an example that will be surprising to some readings, which is that there's a very long Palestinian tradition of writing about Al-Andalus and of thinking about Al-Andalus as a metaphor for reflecting on the plight of Palestine. So it is both a conceptual title that talks about the tension between history and poetry, and it also points to one of the specific contexts in which Al-Andalus has been particularly prominent, which is in Palestinian culture. So much of the scholarship on Al-Andalus has been organized chronologically, or as you pointed out, you know, with a geographical focus. How did you structure your book? This is, again, one of the great challenges when you're writing a book is just figuring out, like, what's the best way to organize the information? And in Colonial Andalus really is a chronological organization. It's about trying to sort of change over time. In this new book, it's really about the kind of multiverse of Al-Andalus, the ways in which there are always simultaneously many different forms of Al-Andalus operating around the world. And for that reason, rather than trying to adopt one single chronological narrative that unfolds in a uniform way across time, I decided to organize the book thematically. So in each chapter, I try to identify one of the specific uses or meanings that Al-Andalus has acquired in modern culture. And I try to basically ask, where did that meaning come from? When did people start talking about Al-Andalus in that way? 
And crucially, why? <laughs> why has that way of thinking about Al-Andalus proven useful? Why has it animated certain forms of identity or community or political action? So for that reason, each chapter in the book is one thematic take on Al-Andalus. And if you like, I could give some examples of that. Yes, please, let's delve a little deeper. Give oh, us more. Okay, all right. So the first two chapters of the book try to tackle how the memory of Al-Andalus has intersected with debates about ethnicity and race in the Middle East and North Africa. And in particular, I try to talk about the ways in which Al-Andalus has fueled debates about Arab identity and Berber or Amazigh identities. And I can go into a little bit more depth about that if you'd like. But crucially, Al-Andalus has been a really interesting site for different debates about Arabness and Berberness or Amazighness and their relationship to the deep past of Al-Andalus. In the third chapter, I take on a different theme, which is, I would say, latent in the first two chapters, but I try to deal with it a bit more explicitly, which is how Al-Andalus has served debates about gender in North Africa and the Middle East, in particular, how Al-Andalus has served as an inspiration for feminist movements in the Middle East and North Africa. Now, one of the authors that I talk about in that chapter, Redwa Ashur, who was a famous Egyptian novelist and wrote a lovely trilogy about Al-Andalus, was also famously a huge champion of Palestine. And I use her work to pivot from chapter three to four to think about the ways in which Al-Andalus has also served as a metaphor for thinking about Palestine, not only for reflecting on questions of loss and occupation, but also for much more hopeful and future-oriented projects. Mahmoud Darwish, in one of his interviews, calls Palestine the Andalus of the possible. And I like taking up that quote and thinking, what is it that Al-Andalus has made possible for Palestinian writers? And not just for Palestinian writers, but that's the question that I draw on in that chapter. And then one of the many cultural forms that runs throughout the book, although it's a very literary book, I also draw on different cultural forms, such as movies, television, and music. And chapter five of the book really focuses mostly on music the various ways in which different artists and performers have engaged the memory of Al-Andalus through music and sound. And one of the questions I'm trying to take up there is, what does it mean to think about the past through music? What kind of stories, what kind of information about the past does music transmit? And what does it mean, how is it that we can engage with the past, and particularly the past of Al-Andalus, through various forms of music? So that's chapter five of the book. So they say each chapters in the book tries to identify one certain way of engaging with the Andalusi past and show the genealogy of where that way of engaging with Al-Andalus came from. And crucially, it tries to show what are the various cultural and political projects it has served. Fascinating. I'd like to go back to music. Sure, please. Um, one of the reasons why you're one of my favorite scholars is your ability to speak to a variety of different audiences at a variety of different levels and how voracious you are in integrating things intellectually into your thought and your argument. I think for me that one of the best examples of that is the way you've integrated music into this project and the playlist that you put together to go with the book. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, there is a Spotify playlist. I think, if possible, we can put a link to it in the program notes for the podcast. This is a very musical book, not only in the sense that there are lots of different songs in it, but also because music is the way that I first encountered Al-Andalus. When I was 18, I took time off after high school and I moved to Spain to study flamenco in Seville. Much to the dismay of my parents who were hoping I would go straight to college. And that trip was really my first encounter with Spain, with southern Spain, where the kind of material remains of Al-Andalus are so present, but also with this musical form, flamenco, 
that many practitioners and audiences associate with the legacy of Andalus. And at the time, when I was 18, I was encountering ways of talking about music that really didn't make sense to me at the time. I didn't know what to do with them. People would say, oh yeah, this way of playing the guitar, this way of singing, this way of making sound, this comes from the Arabs, or this comes from the Muslims. And right now, this book is really my attempt to return to that 18-year-old self with the new tools that I've developed over many years of training as a scholar and think about what does it mean to take those claims seriously? What does it mean when a musician says, this way of making music comes from El Andalus? And something that emerges from that question is that El Andalus sounds very different <laughs> depending on where you're listening to it from. And so I'm trying to track in this book a little bit the very diverse ways in which people have thought about El Andalus through sound and produced El Andalus through sound. And through that, I'm trying to think about this broader question of what does it mean to take seriously music as a sort of historical medium? Now, one more thing I want to say about that chapter on music is that I started with the example of flamenco, and that's one music that, if anyone has thought about Al-Andalus, they might associate with the legacy of Al-Andalus, or at least with Spain's kind of unique cultural heritage. Another form of music that I take up in that chapter is so-called Andalusian music, which is an important musical tradition in North Africa. But I want to really emphasize in that chapter on music that musical performances of Al-Andalus are really, really wide-ranging and diverse. And El Andalus figures in music in really surprising and unexpected places. So one of the sections of that book that might be most surprising and that for me was most fun to work on was hip-hop in El Andalus. Because there's actually a huge tradition of engaging with El Andalus through hip-hop. And so in the last part of that chapter on music, I both kind of do a survey of many of the different hip-hop artists who have drawn upon or alluded to El Andalus in their music. And I try to think about what are the politics, how does El Andalus function politically in that musical form, hip-hop, that many people wouldn't necessarily associate with the legacy of El Andalus. So let's pick a song from the playlist and tell me why you chose it and what I should be focusing on when I'm listening to it. Okay, I'm gonna start at a sort of unexpected place because one of the things that I try to do in this book is to challenge people to think about El Andalus in new ways. So I'm actually gonna start with one of the last songs in the playlist it's called Los Foren, as in the Spanish word Los and the English word Foren. And it comes from a 2015 mixtape by an important rap collective, of which one of the main members is this Spanish rapper named Khaled. Now Khaled is a Spanish rapper of Moroccan descent who has sort of risen to prominence in Spain because of his linguistic virtuosity and because he mixes Arabic and Spanish in really interesting ways. Now, one of the really interesting lines, you know, when I first heard this song, a friend sent it to me back in 2015, I turned it on, and the thing that my ears immediately tuned into was a line in which Khaled shouts out, El Andalus es mi raza, El Andalus is my race. And when I heard that line, I wanted to think, what does it mean to claim El Andalus as a racial identity? Now, on the one hand, I think that this is something about Khaled's bicultural upbringing. He has both a Spanish parent and a Moroccan parent and grew up between Spain and Morocco. But I really think that this claim of Al-Andalus as a sort of racial identity goes beyond any kind of biological essentialism. I think Khaled is really claiming Al-Andalus as a sort of minoritarian identity of resistance, a place where he can find common cause and solidarity with other marginalized groups in Spain. And for that reason, in close association with that line, El Andalus is my race, 
he kind of shouts out to many other different marginalized groups in Spain, be it undocumented immigrants, the urban poor, and so on. And so this is one area in which you see Al Andalus being used in a totally new way, Al Andalus is my race, and in a way that I would call is kind of intersectional. Intersectional that doesn't necessarily point to medieval Iberia. It's less that he's saying, I come from medieval Iberia, and more that Al Andalus is an idea that I find useful for making my sense of identity in Spain today. And so that would be one song from the playlist that I would encourage people to listen to. So we have broad listenership. But many of our listeners are scholars in the field of North African studies. How do you think your book fits into the North African studies? And more importantly, what can it offer that particular audience? Yeah, thanks for that question. Well, I've tried to take a really broad geographic take on Al-Andalus in this book. And yet also, at least for those who know me, it's clear that Spain and Morocco have been the two contexts where I've done most of my work for the past 15 to 20 years. So I'd say that many of the examples and case studies in the book draw heavily on texts and ideas and discourses about Andalus from those two places. I'd like to just mention a few of the ways in which this book intervenes in debates that are happening in North African studies today. One of them is this debate about ethnicity and race. Because in the first chapter of the book, which I call the Arab al-Andalus, I talk about the long history of understanding al-Andalus as primarily an Arab phenomenon rather than a Muslim phenomenon. Now this is an understanding of Al-Andalus that champions the period in which Al-Andalus was ruled by the Umayyads, an Arab dynasty that emerged from Damascus, and that more broadly seeks to link the cultures of Al-Andalus to the cultures of the Levant or the Mashriq. Now this form of imagining Al-Andalus, of understanding Al-Andalus as basically the new Damascus in Cordoba, is a very long-standing discourse that actually existed in the Middle Ages and has persisted intermittently into the present. And usually the people who are excluded or left out of it are North Africans. Usually the bad guys in this story are the Imazichen or the Berbers. And this is true if you look at medieval Andalusi texts that celebrate the Arabness Al-Andalus. And this is also true of modern texts in which very often the fall of Umayyad Cordoba, which happens right at the beginning of the 11th century, is sort of considered the beginning of the end of Al-Andalus. In other words, there's this tendency to think of the moment in which Al-Andalus is no longer being ruled by Arab dynasties who trace their genealogy back to Syria. Nothing really interesting happens in Al-Andalus after that. Now mind you, I'm talking about the 11th century. There are four more centuries of Andalusi history after that. Centuries in which Al-Andalus was predominantly ruled by North African dynasties or dynasties that had very close cultural and political relationships with North Africa. And so in the second part of the book, which I call the Berber Al-Andalus, I try to explore recent attempts by North African writers and artists to push back against that dominant way of thinking about the Arabness Al-Andalus and really to reclaim the Berberness or the Amazighness, the Amazighite of Al-Andalus, to think about Al-Andalus not on an east-west axis connecting Damascus to Cordoba, but on a north-south axis connecting Al-Andalus to Marrakesh, to Fez, and to other parts of North Africa. And really, I think of that second chapter as an Al-Andalus from below, in two senses of the word, both from the south, not Al-Andalus from the east, but from the south, but also from below in the sense that it's Al-Andalus imagined from the perspective of the people who have historically been marginalized in most accounts of Andalusi history. That is North Africans or the North African Amazigh community of Al-Andalus. So that's one of the ways in which 
This is a book that tries to tap into debates about Al-Andalus and connect them to identity politics that are happening in contemporary North Africa right now. That's not the only example. I'm gonna maybe just give two really quick ones. I won't go into as much detail, but just to give North African scholars a little taste for what they might find in the book. The third chapter is called The Feminist Al-Andalus, and it explores the long history of imagining Al-Andalus as a place of exceptional creativity or freedom for Muslim or Arab women. Now I say Muslim or Arab because sometimes this tendency has focused on religion and sometimes on questions of ethnicity. But I want to emphasize that Moroccan writers, and particularly Moroccan female writers, have played a really significant role in claiming and celebrating the significant contribution that women made to culture in Al-Andalus. And so many of the leading figures in that chapter, chapter three, the feminist Al-Andalus, come from Morocco. And I want to give just one example, which is the illustrative example with which I start chapter three which is that if you go to Casablanca today, one of the main high schools you might know is called Wolada, which is a high school that was founded in the 1960s by Khanatha bin Nuna, a pioneer in the Moroccan feminist movement. And that's a high school that's actually named after one of the most famous female poets from Al-Andalus. So basically one of the questions I try to ask in that chapter is, when a Moroccan feminist in the 1960s decides to find a school for girls, why does she draw upon a woman from Al-Andalus's inspiration? And how is that connected to a broader set of assumptions and discourses about the role of women in Al-Andalus? The other example, which I've already delved into a little bit, but I'll just touch on really quickly now, is this question of music. As I already mentioned, music is one of the main cultural forms in which artists today continue to engage with the memory of Al-Andalus. And many of the projects that I explore in my chapter on music center North African and particularly Moroccan musicians. And very often they feature or focus on collaborations between Moroccan musicians and musicians from Europe, most often from Spain. And so one of the things that I try to look at in that chapter is to think about how such collaborations between North African musicians and European musicians tap into a much longer history of debates about cultural collaborations between Muslims and Christians and cultural collaborations between Europeans and North Africans. So that's another example of how my book is engaging with the long history of North Africa and hopefully will be of interest to scholars in North African studies. Dr. Eric Calderwood, thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking forward to having you back for book number three. Inshallah, I My can't guess wait. is you've already started thinking about what that's going to look like. In fact, do you want to give us a sneak preview? I'm sure that you've already started thinking about what you'd like to write about. Yes, actually, just at this very moment, I'm both working on giving some presentations about this book that just came out, but I'm also trying to launch the research on a new project. And this is a project that I've called Babel's Bounty, which is about multilingualism and creativity. And the reason I bring up this book is that it's really a book that emerged from my work on Al-Andalus. Many of the authors and artists that I work on in the book, such as that rapper Khaled, work across different linguistic lines. And not only that, they combine and mix languages in really interesting ways. So as a result of my work on multilingualism in Andalusi-related arts, I've started to think more broadly about what is the relationship between creativity and multilingualism, and what's the long history of that in the Mediterranean region. So TVD, I look forward to coming back and discussing with you soon that project. It's a date in a couple of years. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com as well as on all your favorite places to find a podcast.